Welcome to Voices, the EISA podcast, the space for cutting-edge research in the discipline of international relations and the audible companion to EISA, the European International Studies Association. This podcast sets the stage for deeper insights into award-winning papers, books and theses, as much as it provides a room for the critical engagement with key concepts in political and sociological thought. Voices, the EISA podcast. Feeds your reading lists, makes cutting-edge IR research audible. My name is Judith Koch. I'm a PhD student and the production manager of this podcast. Please welcome today's host, Vinet Thakur, lecturer in international relations at the Institute of History at Leiden University and board member of the EISA. Hello and welcome to this edition of EISA's podcast, Voices. What does it mean to remember in IR? How does collective memory shape not just our understandings of ourselves, but also interstate relations, the politics of security, foreign policy, conflict, peace building, and so on? Conversely, what forms of crises, political security and existential, does the silencing, erasure, or suppression of collective memory spawn? Memory studies in international relations explores the way memory shapes global politics and in turn alerts us to the politics that plays out in the acts of celebration, commemoration, and indeed, weaponization of remembrance. To talk about memory politics, we are very delighted to have today with us Dr. Maria Maxu, who is an associate professor at the Department of Political Science at the University of Copenhagen. Maria has worked extensively on memory studies. And in fact, she recently won the BISA Best Article Award for her paper, in the Review of International Studies, which was on militant democracy in international relations. But that is not the only thing she works on. Maria's expertise extends to critical security studies, political anthropology, and the political practice of deterrence. And she's managed to fuse all of these in her new ERC-funded project, Ritual Deterrence, which, if I understand correctly, looks at the practice of deterrence as a ritual in which its performance is key to its legitimacy. This all sounds very exciting, and I hope we can convince Maria to come back to speak with us on that again. But for today, Maria, we are so very thankful and very much looking forward to this conversation on what is memory studies. Thanks very much once again. Thanks very much, Vinit, for inviting me. Um, as the Italian film director, uh, Federici Fellini famously said, all art is autobiographical. And one could perhaps make a similar argument about academic works. A lot of your work uh, has focused on memory studies, and I assume uh, being from the Baltics plays a role in that. So could you tell us how memory became such a crucial window of your own research about the world? I guess, indeed, it does have uh, something akin to the situation uh, that we all made jokes about uh, at the university when uh, someone came to study psychology. There was always this, uh, this running joke that they must have had something to solve or, or, you know, wrong in their heads that they uh, came uh, looking for an answer uh, to, to, to help with. But uh, I guess, indeed, I mean, I'm constantly reminded of um, this, by, by this line in, uh, in one of the books that I very much like um, by the Czech novelist Milan Kundera, uh, a rather famous line, of course, and the book is called The Book of Laughter and Forgetting. 
And, uh, and this line goes, uh, the struggle of man against power is the struggle of memory against forgetting. So, of course, my initial interest in all things memory-related had something to do with, with uh, this very personal attempt to make sense of the discrepancies between uh, the you know, family memories or private memories and public memories while I was growing up in, uh, in uh, Soviet Estonia. Uh, and, uh, you know, then comes the realization, of course, that, uh, you know, it's not just this sort of immediate context, uh, you know, the Baltic nations and beyond were actually suppressed um, in terms of uh, the ability to, to remember in a sovereign way. Uh, they were forced uh, actively to forget memories of, of independent statehood and, and a different way of life, which we could describe the European way of life during the Soviet occupation. So when the Soviet Union collapsed, I was about roughly 12 years old then. So it was also, you know, quite the right age when you would start uh, looking for the political uh, roots and, and reconnect with the past self and, and find, uh, find the new one. And, and of course, you know, as, as, you, as you grow, you realize that there is perhaps further autopsy uh, to be done when it comes to the political forgetting of the whole region behind the Iron Curtain. And then, you know, hence my, my interest towards also these subaltern memory regimes and practices uh, in a way naturally followed. So there is an element of autobiographical interest. I think it's, it's uh, pretty much undeniable, probably with many, uh, many research topics. And, and it's usually also the natural trigger uh, because uh, I think in, um, in any sort of social or political subject matter, one needs to be uh, somehow also invested uh, emotively. There needs to be a certain passion involved, uh, just you know, also in order to to be able to to carry on uh, with the you know the, the the more difficult aspects of of the academic work, perhaps. But I think there is also maybe the the you know, very basic uh, ontological affinity uh, to uh, memory if, you know, you are, say, constructivist or post-structuralist uh, by your uh, inclination. Uh, just as, you know, anarchy for Alex went, so are victories and defeats uh, what we make of it uh, for, you know, somebody who, who uh, thinks memory matters for international relations. And, and of course, Memory matters for political identities fundamentally. So, so this all uh, this all simply makes sense. Yeah. Um, thanks, Maria. Staying on that, um, for those of us who just sort of striding in, striding into memory studies in international relations, would you be able to sketch for us sort of the intersections between memory studies and, and IR? Uh, in other words, what role does memory play in international relations? Yes, uh, and of course there are, you know, all sorts of interconnections, all sorts of uh, intersections between the two uh, subfields, even though they have not been very systematically explored in IR uh, until recently, I would say, because uh, memory as a sort of social phenomenon obviously was first uh, of interest and, and initially explored in the field such as, you know, sociology and nationalism studies and more generally perhaps area studies, cultural studies. Um, so you could say that, you know, certain aspects of uh, exploring memory 
uh, more systematically in the field of IR have been brought in, you know, via the roots of uh, paying attention to transitional justice and, and post-conflict uh, reconstruction, you know, reconciliation, so on and so forth. But of course, memory fundamentally uh, informs and illuminates many core concepts that we operate with. Uh, in international relations, we could, you know, use memory also as an epithet in front of many of these central notions, such as, you know, for instance, uh, we can talk about the power of memory, which can be uh, very much emotive power. Uh, it can be mobilizing power, uh, but it can be also sort of, you know, memory as a resource of political manipulation. Um, we can talk about memory regimes. We can talk about uh, all sorts of mnemonic actors and mnemonic agents. We can talk about, you know, uh, mnemonic insecurity, so on and so forth. But I guess, you know, when it comes to IR, then perhaps there are... Uh, Maybe, maybe three V's um, uh, uh, more recently that, uh, that are worth highlighting here. So one uh, aspect, of course, uh, pertains to uh, memory uh, and uh, conflicts uh, or you know, particular ways of remembrance and prospects for peace uh, if we turn the coin over. Uh, so... You know, there is this basic suggestion that, that how actors uh, remember uh, their past, particularly, you know, the uh, unsavory bits of their past, uh, when it comes to, you know, their past somehow touching uh, the other's past, uh, for instance, crimes against the others, right? The way the actors remember their past supposedly holds certain indications about what they might do in the future. So this is, you know, something that obviously uh, is uh, of uh, of great interest uh, to to IR. So so there is also this this uh, suggestion that uh, remembering uh, can be more or less uh, ethical or or more or less democratic or more or less uh, liberal. And of course, this is not that straightforward as it sounds uh, in in theory. But but then you know uh, one uh, sort of uh, Dean uh, of this this discussion would be then uh, can we become somehow more benign or can we also signal more benign intentions by uh, being for instance self critical or or um, attempting to atone for our past crimes to our neighbors against whom we wronged uh, in the past. This is one uh, thing. And of course, there is also the other uh, more problematic side that, you know, if you are not sorry, if you are anything uh, but uh, pursuing some sort of politics of contrition or, or, or anything but apologetic, then, then we also see that uh, there obviously is a certain conflict uh, perpetuation uh, um, uh, prospect uh, and, and uh, sort of the prospect of, of actually actively tapping into memory as a resource that can, uh, you know, keep the flame of the conflict very much alive. And in a way, what we have also seen in the context of the current war is, is this very uh, cunning, cynical, uh, creative use of all sorts of past um, tropes in, you know, extremely um, incoherent combinations by Putin. Uh, when it comes to, for instance, uh, launching uh, a military campaign, which uh, supposedly is about 
denazification and decommunization of a former, uh, former well, effectively colony, um, uh, you know, in the present day. But then uh, I think thirdly, we can also see the overlap when it comes to, which is another big area of research, also in international relations recently, the study of uh, populism or, you know, more broadly, you know, all these sort of, um, there are many names for the phenomenon and obviously there are also variations between uh, these, these different uh, um, labels and, and and stories behind these labels, but you know when it comes to the sort of uh, resurge of authoritarianism or illiberalism or, or populism, uh, you name it. Then again, there is this question about you know how uh, certain uh, uh, politics of memory can actually negatively mobilize, how it can uh, you know fuel for instance, anti-immigration sentiment, uh, how it can fuel uh, xenophobia and so on and so forth. So I guess, you know, maybe the, the interesting aspects for IR would be uh, precisely to, to pay more attention to how uh, memory uh, as such and politics of memory uh, equally so is something that uh, has very distinct histories but also geographies uh, in international politics, meaning that you know certain uh, actors that are there today obviously haven't been uh, around, uh, maybe you know in in other critical moments of the past where certain uh, regimes of remembrance were actually uh, set in place, and hence you know again there is this sort of latecomer dynamic, which uh, as many in many other areas of international relations, uh, plays out with uh, important implications uh, for who feels deprived, who feels unrecognized or misrecognized, and so on and so forth. Uh, your own work has also sort of uh, elaborated on the securitization of memory, what you call mnemonic security. Could you please elaborate that for us? Of course. Um, by that, I... Uh, effectively refer to what we could call a subset of ontological security, uh, mnemonic security as a sub-register of ontological security. The main idea being that uh, obviously there is a thing uh, that pertains to somehow feeling also self-security uh, or secure in yourself and not just, you know, making sure that uh, all these material, physical parameters uh, of, uh, of uh, say, you know, traditionally states, body, territory, population, regime would be met uh, and secured. But also there is something uh, that uh, makes actors, including collective actors such as states, uh, particular kinds of actors. And it's that uh, sort of particularity of their self that they inter alia seek to uh, keep secure. And of course, if you know, memory is a very fundamental part of any biographical self-narrative, then it also provides the temporal backbone, in a way, to this ontological security. And then you know, one could argue that, uh, that by default, uh, if we acknowledge that there is such a thing as an ontological security need, uh, for collective and not just individual actors as well, then, you know, um, 
memory is is also an important uh, uh, part that somehow is sought to be safeguarded uh, for these actors. Now, of course, uh, you know this this sounds uh, sort of um, innocent enough, right? But but of course, it's also something that um, that immediately throws us into into this uh, thorny and contested field. That whose memory, first of all, because uh, social memory by default is is something that is uh, you know malleable. And, and of course, you know, those usually who uh, have more institutional power can also have more uh, leverage in, in shaping or pulling it in a particular way. Uh, meaning that it's not necessarily a very uh, innocent or democratic procedure how this uh, security of memory is being, uh, being actually uh, sought and established. And then, you know, as with any security seeking, of course, there is always this uh, this fundamental tension with uh, very fundamental uh, values and and liberties, such as freedom of speech, uh, such as uh, you know freedom of of public debate on certain issues. So these these uh, actors, these states that we might also uh, recognize as as actors that have something uh, like, like certain signs of anxiety when it comes to you know their sense of security you know does my narrative uh, get the kind of a recognition that I actually think it deserves you know either uh, in the regional plane or 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 more more globally uh, these actors if they start somehow fixing um, the uh, right story, for instance, by means of memory laws, by means of punitive memory laws uh, that fundamentally restrict uh, freedom of speech and, and, and freedom of remembrance in that sense, uh, freedom of historical research uh, as well, then we uh, see how uh, problematic the search for uh, mnemonic security can actually become and, oddly enough, how also paradoxically uh, counterproductive to its original aims. Uh, it usually tends to be because just like in you know, standard security relations, so to speak, we can also speak about uh, security dilemmas being uh, aggravated when you know, former victims and perpetrators start sort of trying to outplay each other by, by um, fixing their respective stories. Uh, and thereby actually aggravating uh, their respective uh, anxieties and, and insecurities. Yeah. Um, thanks, Maria. I'm glad you uh, mentioned memory laws uh, because uh, apart from your ERC project, I think this is your other project on memocracy, uh, which is about memory laws, uh, and particularly about how memory laws are aimed at improving, uh, in your own words, a state's mnemonical understanding in the relevant memory order. Could you unpack these three very crucial terms for us, memory laws, mnemonic understanding, and memory order? Yes, uh, yes, and it's also a <laughs> quite a mouthful, I think. Well, memory laws is, is, is something that uh, we often associate with modern times because, uh, you know, we associate memory laws, I think, commonsensically with, with laws that somehow... Um, 
have something to do with, for instance, genocide denialism or, or Holocaust uh, bans, and then, uh, then uh, hence, you know, set certain limits to the acceptability of the historical discourse, public debate, uh, and uh, legitimate remembrance, if you will. Um, but of course, you know, as, as with any concept, uh, this is but one reading of what memory laws are. So, so broadly speaking, of course, memory governance as such dates uh, much further back, at least, you know, till uh, the French Revolution, uh, one could argue. And not all memory laws are necessarily punitive either. We can talk about, you know, memory laws that are also more generally regulatory or prescriptive. I mean, you know, if you want to be generous with the definition, you can also uh, basically take any any uh, sort of uh, governance uh, of uh, state governance, for instance, uh, of um, things that relate to, you know, how we uh, deal with uh, with a history or uh, or history education, for instance. How do we commemorate, you know, what uh, what is our way of ordering our historical memory via museums and um, and uh, sort of commemorating uh, edifice of the state. Um, but of course, the interesting bit or the the more conflictual bit. Um, uh, when it comes to making sense of, of the um, both positive and negative mobilizing power of memory laws is precisely when we get to these uh, more punitive, more restrictive uh, memory laws. And what is that they actually do? What is that they express in terms of the state identity? And what is the uh, supposed uh, goal in, uh, in also uh, interstate uh, or you know perhaps even even uh, uh, further at the transnational plane of things, uh, and and this is where I think these punitive memory laws, which you know by default seek to generally defend a certain sanitized uh, version of the nation's past, um, they become interesting, and they have of course become empirically an interesting and, and frequent uh, phenomenon, often accompanying uh, what we might call illiberal memory politics, which has been you know something that we've seen, for instance, in in uh, in Eastern Europe, of course, uh, which is you know my empirical terrain, but not just. We are talking about uh, laws that that uh, seek to restrict uh, free speech. Uh, that also seek to set certain boundaries to, uh, you know, historical research. If you think of, uh, for instance, the the recent court case that was in uh, in Poland against two history professors, uh, which uh, basically was very much following from the earlier legislation attempt, which uh, sought to control the narrative of uh, only Poles were the victims in the context uh, of, uh, of the Second World War in Poland, or rather that the victims could not be the perpetrators, meaning that, uh, you know, uh, the complicity uh, of, of Poles uh, in the Holocaust against the Jews was sort of sought to be basically written out of the national pure narrative. And then this court case was fundamentally about these historians' goings going against the grain of that, uh, of that very legislation. So, so this is also, uh, you know, how these memory laws can actually relate to the state's identity struggles, which are 
invariably always about uh, where does the state want to stand, where does it want to see itself in the international hierarchy of uh, of things, or where does it want to belong, right? So, uh, for instance, if we go back to the case of Poland, then uh, Poland's uh, search in uh, light of uh, its emergence as a sovereign, as an independent memory political actor, after, you know, it could do independent things again, you know, after the end of the Cold War, was very much about establishing um, this sort of controlled self-narrative, which was about uh, um, getting proper recognition to the immensity of the Polish suffering in the Second World War, which is undeniable. But there is this, you know, fine line between uh, if you are about sort of one side of this story only, uh, then it might be uh, willful uh, forgetting, as it oftentimes, unfortunately, has been in Poland's case at the state level, of what was also uh, the reality in the context of the Second World War, when uh, when uh, there were instances of, of uh, Polish complicity uh, with the Nazi uh, crimes against uh, the Jewish neighbors of uh, of the Poles in Poland, uh, and to so- somehow try to sort of outlaw the story is of course fundamentally misreading and going against the grain of the established mnemonical hierarchy in the Western world, which had the Holocaust as the foundational crime and did not really uh, want to have any competing sort of suffering or, or martyrdom stories next to it, particularly when they tried to somehow whitewash uh, elements uh, of um, this other sufferer's participation in the foundational crime. Uh, itself. So, you know, there is this element of, of uh, memory being tied to a uh, 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 story of the self and uh, the story of the self always having some sort of an expression, uh, some element of recognition seeking uh, that is necessary uh, for it to actually, you know, feel established domestically. Uh, so, um, when I talk about memory orders, uh, then this is basically, um, I mean, it, 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 I guess it's more, you know, in a metaphorical sense than the order that we are usually used to think about in international relations, like international orders. It's perhaps less rigorously institutionalized and it's more, uh, you know, fuzzy and soft. But uh, we are talking about uh, certain hierarchical organizations about um, the narratives of the past that matters in the present. So when it comes to, you know, I refer to the, to the memory order that Poland uh, was, was uh, having certain issues with in terms of, you know, not feeling its past sufferings uh, being sufficiently recognized by that order, then this order would be the post-1945, post-World War II memory order that was established uh, after the end of the Second World War, which, of course, was 
uh, as all memory orders are, selective, meaning that not everyone got their say, not everyone got their story squeezed into, uh, or not everyone even, you know, um, had opportunity to articulate uh, that story in that order. You know, I was uh, reading this Argentinian poet, Antonio uh, Portia, who once said, uh, one lives in the hope of becoming a memory. And um, uh, I'm sort of almost tempted to reverse this quote and say that one memorializes in the hope of reliving, which which also happens with, uh, you know, a lot of times where say, I think uh, in the global south, when we remember Bandung, uh, it's kind of that glorious moment that one wants to relive. And a lot of literature comes thinking about indigenous communities, for instance, the way they remember. Uh, but except as far as sort of the historical memory in IR is concerned, you know, it's it's more about what you said initially that it's more about you know one memorializes in the hope of never reliving that past, uh, the historical past. Um, as far as the study of uh, memory in IR is concerned, seems to be a place um, that we remember to flee from, to forget, uh, a place that reminds us of the horrors of the past, of the dystopias. And Kristen Ross, in a way, I think, critiques a lot of the memory studies scholarship for reducing collective memory to this sort of tragedy, a mass tragedy, um, catastrophe, a mass extermination, uh, which comes a lot from that, you know, for it, it, it's sort of memory studies starting from and focusing a lot on Second World War. Uh, and it is something that you've also sort of critiqued memory studies for, uh, sort of this fixation with Western Europe after Second World War. Uh, Enzo Traverso makes sort of a similar but slightly different point where he argues that we kind of, in memory study, has a theological fixation with a brutal and dystopic past. Uh, you know, there are no more past utopias which guide our work. And he sort of pushes us to think about past utopias, which sort of help us to sort of imagine creative possibilities. Uh, I wondered how far would you agree with this sort of criticism? And I, especially in IR in general as a discipline, which I kind of believe is guided by cynicism about the world. Do you think memory studies offers a more hopeful pathways? Yeah, I, I wish it would offer more hopeful pathways. I'm, I'm, I've been thinking of that, uh, you know, quite some time actually. And I think what you see rather is, is, uh, I mean, aside from you know some some memory studies that are more borderline uh, studies of literature, maybe they do. And, and maybe there you, you can also see the search and, and sometimes, you know, finding the sublime in, in the tragedy. Uh, and that frequently can happen uh, there. But I think uh, what, if I look, you know, with my um, inevitable uh, sort of lenses that, uh, that tend to view everything through also the notion of power, right, you know, who has it, who, who somehow uses memory as a resource, who utilizes memory for, you know, actually uh, further aggrandizing one's, uh, one's power um, and, and capability of some sort, then I'm, I'm not uh, seeing too hopeful signs in the sense. I, I see that there is this tendency uh, to, to, in a way, use historical memory as a replacement for religion 
in uh, in many cases. So it's sort of becoming, uh, particularly in again these authoritarian contexts like Russia, uh, it's becoming a kind of a political or a secular uh, religion. Uh, in these cases, with you know their whole sets of uh, political rights uh, included, and you see that in that sense, it's it's. Uh, it's not pushing us in the direction of, you know, somehow you learn uh, from it or there is this, this uh, sort of hope of uh, enlightenment that, uh, that you become more reflexive if you, uh, if you remember. Because this remembering, uh, some people, some, some, some groups seem to be actually very much um, content with being uh, fed, very simplified stories. And, uh, and consuming them in this way and, uh, and allowing oneself also to be carried away by these very simple, uh, simple narratives uh, and to be somehow re-enchanted or refused as a community by these, uh, by these simplistic and, and actually very cherry-picked and selective stories. So um, I, uh, I wish uh, I would see more uh, progressive hope in the promise of, say, the liberal enterprise of transitional justice also than, than actually, you know, uh, the world politics or, or the world application of it uh, allows us to see. Because I think it's also uh, nice to observe here that um, in theory, of course, uh, this uh, enterprise has been built up, right? We, we you know, have uh, lots of uh, ideas about how things should be and then, you know, how this should lead to reconciliation and how former uh, enemies, former perpetrators should uh, atone so that that would be possible to build a more peaceful, uh, peaceful path forward for everyone. But in practice, however, we see also how uh, these ideas are uh, applied uh, Usually, only to the weak states, so to speak, or or to the to the uh, environments that can be uh, neatly controlled by the powerful. Whereas, when it comes to you know also the unsorted legacies of the likes of uh, the United States, for instance, with its uh, with its uh, racial segregation legacy and, and, and the history and remembrance of slavery, we've already very recently seen very strong backlashes, for instance, by the Trump administration in terms of um, countering the attempts to, to actually come to terms societally, more systematically with that legacy. And I guess ditto for the United Kingdom, uh, which uh, fundamentally uh, has issues uh, with... Uh, uh, untangling uh, what still uh, you know keeps being remembered as as somehow the the benign uh, legacy of the British Empire um, from you know the the, the very um, very dark pages of of that uh, empire. So so I think you know the the sort of hopeful part I don't think comes from the intersections of uh, international politics and memory studies but perhaps the hopeful um, ways forward uh, from what I see can be uh, excavated from from literature that deals with memory rather than scholarship uh, of 
historical memory. If you had to sort of uh, characterize some of the key questions and debates in memory studies right now, what would those be for you? And it's for sort of for those of us, including students who are sort of you know interested in memory studies. Uh, what are the key debates right now? Yeah, I guess again, I I probably would have a little bit uh, of a tilted answer because I don't consider myself a memory studies scholar proper, right? And as I mentioned, the international uh, relations. Uh, as an entry point, is a relative latecomer uh, to these uh, to this field and to these discussions. But I think I already mentioned, obviously, the the many debates of decolonizing memory, but also decolonizing memory studies, is 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 something that you know in alignment with with all decolonization efforts of of how we uh, think of some of the key concepts uh, in our in our discipline and you know in social sciences perhaps more broadly is very much part and parcel of also uh, the the sort of key trends or key topics of uh, of memory studies uh, these days and i think uh, maybe you know coming back to some of these uh, uh, themes uh, that we touched upon previously. I think we, there is no way to to uh, escape uh, the question of uh, sort of illiberal backlash or or you know populist uh, backlash also in in uh, in terms of uh, dealing with historical memory uh, because you could say that you know much of uh, both memory governance, but also research in post World War II memory was was very much carried by these ideas that somehow you know we we look into these past atrocities um, and uh, we we uh, will find light in uh, sort of negating. Uh, particular past practices, also regulating or or ordering in a way the remembrance in a way that that uh, there uh, won't be any recurrence of of uh, these uh, past uh, atrocities anymore. I mean, this never again uh, imperative, so to speak. But recently, you know, seeing also all sorts of uh, renationalizations and re-centralizations of, of historical narratives and also historical research, more troublingly, I'd say. And in memory studies, more generally, this, this realization that perhaps, you know, these transnational imperatives, how just remembrance looks like and, uh, and how everyone ought to face the past, how there is a certain duty to remember, actually might be part of the problem. I mean, Leah David has has this recent uh, interesting uh, book uh, where she fundamentally uh, challenges this idea of moral remembrance and shows how this has actually generated these, uh, you know, sort of ethnic nationalism-based backlashes. Uh, where you know these human rights memorialization practices and norms can actually have inadvertently harmful effects. So I think this dynamic, obviously, is something that is um, that is you know both very interesting but also very very urgent politically uh, to to study, and even more urgently, perhaps uh, some of these distinct threads of, you know, memory politics, memory studies, uh, transitional justice, international relations come together when it comes to the uh, immediate question of what to do with a state 
genocidaire of the kind of Russia uh, after this war is over. Thanks, Maria. Before we let you go, could you suggest for us uh, any sort of books or readings um, that we could follow up on, in addition to your own great work, of course? Well, there are, of course, so many, and it's always uh, so difficult to pick uh, out uh, a few. Uh, but I think in order, again, in the current context, uh, to understand uh, some of the thinking, some of the sort of... Uh, post-Soviet predicament in its various um, different uh, expressions. I think the, the works uh, by Svetlana Alexievich, uh, who also herself embodies uh, much of that post-Soviet predicament, because I believe uh, she's the product of, of, you know, one parent is Ukrainian, one Belarusian, uh, she herself is a Russian speaker, uh, and 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 I guess identifies as a Belarusian uh, writer, and and due to her you know recent Nobel uh, Prize in literature, most of her uh, oral histories uh, in the many on the many tragedies that actually have been puncturing uh, the Soviet Union and the Soviet uh, era uh, have been translated into English, so they are available. So I guess you know first and foremost, I would suggest the book The Second Hand Time. Uh, the last of the Soviets, which is about uh, people of uh, the Soviet Union processing the collapse of the Soviet Union, something that uh, anthropologist Alexei uh, Yurchak has also written about uh, very compellingly in terms of you know how everything was there and suddenly it wasn't anymore. So in a way, I'd say we see you know the reverberations of this still. Uh, having resurfaced in the context of the current war. But academically speaking, I think I would also very warmly recommend um, uh, um, the book uh, from uh, 2013 by Brent Steely, which is on alternative accountabilities in global politics, which I think is a pretty uh, mind-blowing book, actually, because it, it looks into uh, the scars of violence uh, on the bodies of humans, but also, you know, on landscapes and on, on buildings, and, and starts via that conceptualizing uh, an alternative concept of accountability. Um, so it's, it's something that is, uh, that is uh, you know, very um, symptomatically creative, but also very unusual, I think, in terms of bringing uh, social theory uh, you know, the study of, of, of landscapes, art, um, uh, and, um, and uh, monuments, and of course, uh, human bodies uh, together in a very compelling way. Yeah. Thanks very much, Maria. We couldn't have ended with sort of on a better note. I think both these are great recommendations. Um, once again, thank you so very much for giving us the time. I think it's been quite a learning experience and we enjoyed it a lot. Thanks very much again. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you for listening. Please find all information on today's interview guests and host in the show notes. Voices, the EISA podcast, is available on all established podcast platforms. If you liked it, subscribe now. Voices, the EISA podcast, feeds your reading lists, makes cutting-edge IR research audible. <laughs>